Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to all of you. My name is Max and I welcome you to the first Vita DAO panel discussion in 2022 with the topic on the quest to quantify biological age. As usual, the discussion will last 45 minutes to an hour and then afterwards we have like 15 minutes of Q&A from the audience and you can just leave your uh, questions in the chat. And our guests today are Dr. Morgan Levine, who is an assistant professor at Yale, where she studies the molecular mechanisms of aging. And last week, she also announced that she's a founding PI at Altos Labs, a company that is dedicated to restoration and maintenance of health via cellular health reprogramming. From Cologne in Germany, we have Dr. Uh, Joris uh, Delane joining us, with his, who is a group leader at the Max Planck Institute for the Biology of Aging. And his research interests are in genetics of human longevity and human biomarkers of aging. And we also have Nicolina Lautz. She's a serial entrepreneur with a few exits under her belt and co-founded Glycanage, a company that's unlocking the human glycome for preventive health and longevity. Thank you, three, for joining us today. Maybe let's get started uh, with like a, an overarching question of uh, what's your short definition of uh, biological age? Uh, Morgan, do you want to give it a shot? Uh, so I think it's pretty hard to have a short definition of biological age, because at least the way I think about it is it's not a single thing. And it's what we call a latent concept, meaning it's not actually observable or measurable. Um, the way I like to think of it is that it's just the divergence. So if you think of a complex system, the way that that system has diverged from some optimal state. And you kind of reach that optimal state through development in some of these programs. But over time, the system diverged from that, making it less resilient. So that's that's kind of my overarching definition. But the direction in which it diverges is can be multifactorial. Yoris, do you want to add something to that? Or how do you look at this problem of biological age? Yeah, if I would define it very simple, I would say it's kind of the age that your body is. Actually, it's not the age that you're chronological like in your passport. It's actually the age that your body is at the moment based on different processes like Morgan already mentioned. Um, so we work all on different things. Um, but it's kind of, I define it always at the state that your body is at the moment. That's the kind of your biological age. Um, so which is different from your, can be different from your chronological age, which is the age in your passport, of course. Nina, do you agree with those statements? Yeah, absolutely. And I have a much more layman view. So we all have a different health span and lifespan. So biological age should be where you are on that health span or lifespan journey. Not, it can't be precise, but as precisely as possible at the moment. So where are we currently then with quantifying this uh, mysterious biological age? Whoever wants to go. I guess I'll jump in. Um, I think we have some measures that we can show are probably better at capturing it than just knowing someone's chronological age. Um, at the same time, I think it's, there's definitely room for improvement. And the hard thing is, again, because there's no truth, this is not an observable state. We'll never really know. We'll never perfectly capture it or know how close we are to capturing it. Um, I think we have, again, some measures that are starting to get at it, but again, there's lots of room for improvement. 
And I think we are there also limited in what we can actually measure, because of course, many things that we are measuring are in the blood, but the blood is only a limited representation of the body. So we are going in the right direction, but I agree with Morgan that we are not there yet. And there's a lot of room for improvement in the coming years. When, when we talk about that right now and think about biomarkers of this biological age. I mean, what do you think is like a good criterion to actually say something is like a biomarker of aging or like just a biomarker of a disease or like a biomarker of whatever? Joris, you're nodding your head. What the yeah, so so if I can start. So I see it as, as the, the, the ideal biomarker of aging, which is also nicely defined by the AFAR, um, is actually a biomarker that is a better predictor of your health than gonological age. So it associates with different diseases, richer mortality and all these kinds of things. The second thing that is important is that it's easily measurable and quantifiable so that you can measure it in individuals um, very straightforward and also ideally multiple times during their life. And the third thing is that it's ideally also measurable in different organisms so that you can actually translate findings between humans and model organisms. Um, so those are the criteria I, I found very important for biomarker of aging. But I can also tell you there's no biomarker of aging yet that meets all these criteria. So that is also what we need to work on. Anything to add, Nina? So from my side, it would robustly co correlate with chronological age and independent cohorts and, and, and ideally all cohorts you get hold of. Uh, it would be predictive of age-related decline in function, disease, or mortality, and then also be responsive to things we know are good for healthy aging. So something that's well-validated and we know this is good for health and aging, the biomarker would respond to this type of intervention. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think all of those are really critical criteria. The only one I will add, which, which kind of, I think, first got out a little bit, is that it needs to be highly reliable in terms of having very low technical variation. So I think a lot of, we often overlook this um, and we say, oh, in a big cohort, it predicts these things and it tracks with age, but at an N of one, are you actually getting reliable measure time and again when you measure it in the same individual, say on the same day? or even the next week. So the three of you work like a little bit of in different fields of if related to what kind of biomarkers you are um, looking at. And I would assume like each of those biomarkers has like certain strengths and certain weaknesses of the characteristics that you just mentioned. Um, before we directly go into it, could you guys give the audience maybe a, a a quick overview of what your biomarker is about. Maybe Morgan, you made your, your famous with the methylation clocks. Can you talk a little bit what is like methylation? Why is it used as aging clocks uh, and the like? And then Joris uh, uh, and Nicolina, if you can just like follow up with like your discipline, that would be great. Yeah, so um, I work mainly on DNA methylation biomarkers, as Max said. And basically what that means is that you can look across the genome and you have these specific sites called CPGs. So it's a C followed by a G, and these can have an, a chemical addition of a methyl group. Um, but the interesting thing that people have found is that the percent of cells that are methylated at a given region 
changes very systematically with age. Um, and this has been record, reported for decades. Um, but because it's so precise, people can actually look at the pattern or the degree of methylation across tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of these sites and put all that information together to say you have the profile of someone who is this age or you have the disease or mortality risk of someone who is this age. So that's kind of where DNA methylation or these called epigenetic clocks came from. Oh, and I'll just add the one thing um, that I got, the reason I got into epigenetic clocks and was so fascinated by them is that the same exact clock can be applied to essentially any tissue or cell type. So they're not, you know, just in blood or, or you have to use a different clock for brain than you do for liver. You can use the exact same clock in all of them. And now Steve Corbath has even shown you can kind of do the same clocks across different mammalian species as well. Can I go? Okay, so we look at the human glycum, uh, specifically gly glycums on IgG, which is the most prevalent antibody in blood. And then basically looking at these big cohorts of people is pretty new in terms of glycums. It's maybe about 10 years old or 10, 15 years old. And whenever we looked at this big data sets of uh, people, and also if we looked at specific disease, we have to know the age of the patient to understand the disease because aging was the strongest factor. So aging was the strongest signal. And then we modeled this clock. It was published actually the same year and date as Steve Horvath. So it was on the 10th of December, 2013. Steve's was a final version, ours was a preprint. Um, and then the epigenetics scale up a lot because there's lots of lab, labs that can do it. Glycans, only a few labs around uh, the world you do it and only a few researchers understand them. So they're a little bit neglected for, for a time, uh, but they are very predictive of uh, future incidence of disease very broadly. And they would move with general aging. So same as epigenetics, they move with general aging uh, and they're not as precise. So they would uh, correlate highly with chronological age, but not as precisely that you can predict chronological age. It, would, it can vary quite a bit, but the variation is also something we can explain. So even in that first paper, we can explain why somebody was older or younger by the glycan age with traditional biomarkers in blood, also BMI, waist size, and so forth. So we can ex explain quite a bit of it. And then we also know that they're prognostic. So they would change in certain diseases, the glycans would change up to a decade before you develop it. So you have this long time frame uh, to change something and, and maybe delay the disease. Uh, which is our main focus. Yeah, I actually started more in the, the traditional way in the, with the clinical blood-based biomarkers, which you can just measure when you go to a doctor like glucose or triglycerides. And we first tried to see how predictive they are, which worked reasonably well, but we also realized that those are not the best markers. Um, because they actually change when you age in a way that they sometimes flip their effect. So for example, you have triglycerides where you have a higher level that is uh, bad for you at a younger age, but when you are say above 85 years of age, this effect switches and a higher level is actually good for you. So we realized that that was probably, we're not probably the best markers to use. And then we went into the direction of metabolomics. And metabolomics can be measured in an untargeted way. So you get a very big profile of all the metabolites in your body, or at least in your blood, or you can do it targeted. And we went then for the targeted approach together with a company 
um, and then you measure really standardized with a so-called NMR platform, um, different metabolites in the blood. So we measured, for example, again, the glucose, a lot of lipid-related parameters, uh, things like amino acids. And in total, the, the panel is about, say, uh, 200 metabolites that you get and all derivatives from that. And we use that in our studies now um, as kind of our markers for, for biological age. So, but I'm actually interested in combining all different platforms. So I'm not bound to one specific platform or one specific method, but I'm actually interested to see how we can combine different um, markers, biomarkers with different platforms together. So maybe following it up on what you just said about the combination of uh, biomarkers, um, do we know how like um, DNA methylation, glyco glycosylation and metabolomic biomarkers actually are correlated with each other? Um, like, uh, can we say, well, if like, we have like a certain methylation pattern, then our glycans are up as well. What's like the state of the science there currently? Yeah, I mean, this is this is one of the, the, the current problems in the field that there are not many studies where all of these things are measured at once because it's very expensive to, to get data on all of these. So there, there are some recent publications that looked at it where I know they combined the glycans, the epigenetics, and also the, the metabolomics. And actually they see that there is some overlap between the, between the different uh, omics. Um, but also there are differences. And that's actually interesting because they it seems that they explain another part potentially of, for example, mortality of, or of chronological age. So yeah, we, we, I actually really believe that we need to combine them. Otherwise we will not capture, capture it completely. And even when combining them, we have to see um, how much we can predict, but at least it will become better than focusing on one specific outcome. That was actually a really, and the only type of comparison paper we've seen to date, and it was um, in, done independently as well. And there, the epigenetics and the IgG glycomics would track uh, general aging, so they wouldn't be risk specific. Prote the proteomic and metabolomic clock was risk specific. And then the acceleration of the uh, glycan and the metabolomic clock was most predictive of future hospitalization from the broadest range of diseases. Um, the epigenetic clocks were the first generation, so Morgan can talk about that a lot, but they were very predictive chronological age. So they lost some of the clinical relevance. Um, but when they put all of them together, they had a megaomics clock, and that wasn't relevant to future hospitalization. It was too predictive of chronological age. So putting them together, we're not trying to create this you know, great clock of chronological age. I, I think the most interesting part will be the difference between those clocks and to see if they actually account for different aging mechanisms. Cause it could be that you have a great uh, epigenetic clock but you don't have a good glycan one, you don't have a good uh, metabolomic one and your intervention may be different or there could be some interest, something interesting coming from that in the future. Yeah, I think, I think for me, the problem with at least what's been done in this is that they're looking at these questions at the clock level, right? But the clocks already have some biases in how they were trained. And, and I don't think we can take what we find in terms of correlations at the clock level as indicative of whether these phenomenon are related or multiplicative. And I think we actually need to go back, ignore what was on the clocks and actually develop measures by incorporating these all kind of at the start um, and, and understanding, you know, are there certain 
features or CPGs that change their methylation pattern with age that relate to metabolites or glycans, but it's, you know, it's not the whole thing that ends up in the clock. And you really can start picking apart which ones are capturing overlapping signals versus which ones are capturing distinct signals. And then which of whether the overlapping or distinct are most important for creating the types of biomarkers we discussed in terms of the criteria that's important. Morgan, you just mentioned that uh, these clocks were biased when they were trained. What kind of bias do, do, do they have? Yeah, so um, as mentioned, the first generation clocks were trained to predict chronological age. Um, and so if you think about it, the way that the machine learning technique uses is it's the optimal thing for it would be to predict chronological age perfectly. But when we're talking about biological age, we know that not everyone of a given chronological age is aging at the same rate. And so actually by reducing the variance within age, you're probably kind of removing out the signal that we're trying to actually capture. So what we want is any divergence or discordance between your predicted age and your actual age to have biological meaning. Um, this is where the second generation epigenetic clocks kind of came in and tried to do that. Um, again, we've shown they're better than the first generation. They're not perfect and you can probably do it more. And this is where I think, you know, bringing in things like these other omics when you're developing it will only make them better because as I, as I mentioned, when you asked to describe what biological age is, there is no ground truth. So what our outcome is that we should be predicting is not entirely clear, but, under, but actually being able to understand how these patterns are changing and how that maps onto various disease outcomes, I think is gonna be a critical part to developing better biomarkers. There are like two things that I think I heard, I was like, to some extent, there's like almost like the underlying data is like might not uh, be enough or is like not comprehensive enough. Um, it, it is lacking something. Um, and the second thing is that like the algorithmic part, which is like more like supervised learning might the, what we're looking at, what we're trying to pre predict is like a, a little bit of a problem. So those are like two, two factors in the, in this equation um, for the data part. I mean, what would it cost to say like uh when we say we want to have like hundred thousand people and we want to get for all of them all the methylation we want to get all the glycans we want to get all the omics i mean is this like a an effort that like one lab could do or do we have like an or need do we need like a biological aging clock organization that uh that takes that and suspends like whatever five million or whatever the cost is to doing that or other initi initiatives like that I mean, I can tell you it will be very expensive to do it. That's why no single lab is able to do it. Maybe now companies are able to do it, and I think they are going in this direction, but we as researchers do not have the money normally to do this. Because, I mean, the better belongings you can measure for, say, 20 euros a sample nowadays, which is really cheap. But then on top, when you do the epigenetics, it's a, a couple of hundred euros. Proteomics is even more expensive. It's And then if you add it is all up per person, you, you come to 580,000 euros. If you then want to add RNA-seq on top, ideally, it becomes way too expensive. So I would be very much in favor of something like a consortium where this is done but um, i'm not really aware of this happening at the moment um, but it would be for the field very good if we can combine all these markers in one study ideally a very broad study as well with a lot of phenotypic information of these individuals and a broad age range 
So that is kind of the dream, I think, for most of us to have such a, such a cohort to do this, but it's not existing yet. Nina Morgan, are you sharing that dream? Yeah, I, I mean, I think one other hard thing about this is that for the biomarkers, again, we one of the criteria is prediction of some out, you know, various outcomes, whether it's life expectancy or disease incidence, um, which would therefore either require us to start collecting samples now and wait, or to find banked samples, which, depending on how they were stored and all these other, you know, things that can cause issues with the data on. I don't. I know methylation is pretty stable, but I know there are probably other biomarkers that are going to be less stable in frozen samples. So, it, it you know the money is a huge issue, but even the logistics of developing a cohort with all these things. I think we can start you know adding one or two things simultaneously, and then maybe in a different cohort you have two other things, and you can kind of start linking across them. But yeah, it's a it's a major challenge. Nina, you're, you're, you're a company, right? So, uh, like, uh, I'm a company. So, I'm very biased. raise 100 million or something like that. <laughs> well, I, I think actually the company was, will probably run these trials and include uh, more and more of the biomarkers and, you know, developing the therapeutics or supplements. It, it, it makes sense to do these trials. So, if, you, if you're making claims around aging, at least you should try and use all of the available tools to measure it to show what impact it has. So I think that's one big place to where we'll see multiple biomarkers combined with different therapies. Uh, and then of course you have Steve Horowitz Clock Foundation. I think they're going in this direction. I think it needs to expand from just epigenetics, but I, I think that's a good initiative. Yeah, I, I want to add one thing to Morgan's point, which is also very important indeed to mention is that for example, with the metabolomics, we know that it's influenced by the state of an individual. So it, but the epigenetics is very standardized and you can measure it many times during the day and ideally you would get the same measurements. But with things like proteomics and metabolomics, we know it fluctuates. Your glucose level fluctuates during the day. Um, so this kind of things you ideally also want to take into account. So if you want to create such a cohort, we also have to do longitudinal, longitudinal follow-up of these people even uh, daily measurements and then multiple times in a year. So then it becomes even more expensive, but it's needed because we know that many of these omics based measurements fluctuate um, and the epigenetics is the nice is nice in the way that it's less uh, happening there. So it's more stable. So that's why it's also easier to create clocks and things out of it. Um, but it's something that we should also take into account when we do such studies maybe adding like to this uh, thing of like uh, like biological things are like fluctuating like in, in many parts like uh, in the omic space but you also have like differences in like different tissues and organs um, or like also like your habits play like a, a role that like I guess like smoking makes your lungs age faster um, so are we like looking at the future where we have like one clock per tissue that we then have to combine or um, how you guys think about that? Um, what, what's like the, the clockwork of the future to measure biologic age going to look like? I mean, ultimately, I think, you know, if we're talking about people tracking biological age or clinical trials, we're probably going to have to do this in blood or saliva or some easily available tissue. Um, we've done a lot of work on methylation clocks in brain, but you're not going to be taking 
biopsies from people's brains. Um, so I, I think the thing moving forward is to actually see if there are signals or biomarkers in blood that can proxy aging in different tissues and understand how that maps onto aging in different tissues. Um, we started to try and do that with methylation. And I know too, there's also um, cell-free methylation that people use to do this in terms of cancer. But this is also another place where I think actually the, the proteomics and metabolomics is good because we kind of know where these things are arising from. Um, and again, how you can combine these things. I mean, you, what you just talked about is they're like in a way like, like molecular biomarkers and more like physiological biomarkers, right? So um, um, what strengths and weaknesses do each have of them? You just mentioned like that probably physiological like are like easier to have an interpretation of, but uh, is this like generally true or is, especially if they fluctuate and depend even on what you eat like lipids? I mean, that's the thing for us with the metabolomics. When we look at the findings, we can easily interpret them biologically, what it means. I mean, this is much shown to be much harder for the epigenetics. I mean, when you look at the methylation sites that predict the clock, it's very hard to determine how they biologically work in your body. And it's much easier when you look at, at metabolites. And for example, there are already some genetic studies on these different metabolite levels, which actually pinpoint the specific uh, genetic markers that are responsible for higher or lower levels. So for these types of, of measurements and also for the proteomics, it's much easier to identify which biological processes um, they are influencing these markers. And that's less uh, well done, well possible for, for the epigenetic markers, I would say. So that's a big difference between them. So for us, we know that the aging mechanism is this low-grade chronic inflammation or infla-aging. And um, well, also when we look at diabetes, we're actually looking at different glycans on different proteins. And for the IgG glycan, we know, we understand the mechanism, we, we know what it means, but for these other glycans, we don't yet know. So we have also potential to do a, a metabolic aging clock but then we would have the same problem with epigenetics. We don't yet know the mechanism of it, but with the IG glycan, we, we know it uh, very well. And in terms of stability, it's somewhere in between. So with um, uh, metabolism, it can change daily, as you already said. For uh, the IgG glycans, we know the half-life is about three weeks. So you're always seeing, let's say like six weeks. So we say let's in 12 weeks, you will see uh, a significant enough change if it's a moderate intervention. Uh, but then with epigenetics, you're seeing a much longer uh, timeline. So Morgan, you can tell us how much, but uh, I think it's six months minimum, if I'm not wrong. Yeah. I mean, so so also to go back, the way the way I like to think about kind of this question is which biomarker or biological age estimate you should use depends on what you're using it for. Um, so I like to think of this kind of in a hierarchical kind of structure, like you kind of mentioned, Max, like you have molecular changes that then will feed up as they reach a certain point to cellular changes, eventually tissue changes, full system changes, and then full organismal changes. And this is really why we don't visually see the effects of aging until much later in the life because you've had the accumulation at all those lower levels you've had to reach before it starts manifesting. Um, 
So from that framework, if my goal is to simply predict who's going to live for the next 10 years, I would just do like walking speed or some functional thing because it should be capturing all the, it's the emergence of all the changes that happened at the lower levels. Um, but for my lab, the reason we're interested in, in uh, methylation is like we're, we're really interested in actually mapping how these molecular changes feed all the way up. I am not going to come out and say methylation clocks are the best predictor of all these aging outcomes um, across the populations. But to me, it's more about understanding the phenomenon that potentially, although it hasn't been proven, might be driving this aging process. Um, I would say in terms of responsiveness to interventions, I think we it, it's kind of hard to answer because my hypothesis would be that different types of epigenetic changes will respond differently. And you know, when you sum them in the clock, it that that might give you kind of a it won't give you a full picture of the responsiveness. And again, the clocks were trained in a slightly biased way. So whether those changes are actually what we should be targeting, um, just to circle back to that. You mentioned, well, you, you did mention, um, but um, in a way, how can we currently accelerate or decelerate like any of those aging clocks? Um, it's like, what, what ways do we have or what do we know what works, what doesn't work? I can tell you in, in a cell culture what we can do. So, I mean, that's the one other thing that makes us really excited about methylation clocks is I can measure the same clock that I would measure in a blood sample from a human in a dish full of dermal fibroblasts or hepatocytes or astrocytes. It doesn't really matter what cell type. And we can actually do high throughput screens to figure out what moves those measures and then say, are those things matter? Do they matter for health span, lifespan in blood? Um, so there are a bunch of different things. You know, it seems things like rapamycin decelerates uh, some of the epigenetic clocks when measured in, in cell culture. Um, I mean, the biggest one is uh, epigenetic reprogramming. So using Yamanaka factors to convert cells back to induced pluripotent stem cells. But even if you don't move them all the way back, you see some of this deceleration, even if you can maintain the cell identity as well. So, but who knows? I mean, there might be others. And again, I think they're going to target certain types of epigenetic changes, not all of them. And it'll depend on which ones are in our clocks on whether they can pick this up. Yeah, and this is, an, again, another big advantage of, for example, the epigenetic clock, which can be measured in this way. With, with metabolites, it's completely different, because if you would measure your metabolites in cell culture, you will likely see a different picture than what you measure in your blood, because your, the measure in your blood is already the readout of your whole body. So this type of experiment, where, that, where, that's where the epigenetic clock has its advantages, and that's also why most people are using it uh, at the moment. And... But another thing is, if you look into the clinic, which I find very interesting to, to get to as well, maybe later, is, is that it's much easier to implement um, the metabolomics, for example, in the clinic, because the clinic is already used to it. And implementing things like the epigenetic clock will requires us as researchers, it's much, we need to convince the, the, the doctors that these kind of measures can also be implemented. But at the moment, they still measure your glucose and your triglycerides, the standard measures, and they use that, and they are not there yet to start implementing even the metabolomics, which measures the same things, but only with one blood sample, you can get all these things at the same time. 
And, th and let's stand alone the, the epigenetic clock where most of the doctors don't even know it exists or have heard about it, but are not implementing it yet in the clinic. So we as researchers have to work on all these different levels. And I think this is also the distinction, for example, between what I'm doing and what, what Morgan is doing. I'm really trying to go more into the clinic and get my kind of measurements there. Um, and Morgan is more developing the, 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 the best algorithms um, to kind of see what the biological age is that you can estimate from um, a specific measurement like the epigenetics. And, and I mean, Nicola, Nicolina is somewhere in between because I mean, they have already created something that they want to bring ideally to the consumer and, and, and even maybe the clinic. Yeah, no, no, we have been consumer last year, last two years and a half, and even in clinic as well. Uh, but we're, so all of our studies are in humans. We've mainly looked at the biobanks and had all the other um, data in there from genetic microbiome, lots of different uh, parameters. And then about 2016, we started to do intervention studies because we knew we can measure this biological aging, but we didn't know if you can change it, if we just age at a different pace. Uh, and we know that you can change it with diets and exercise. So we started with a small study in a nursing home and everybody slightly changed with, on the diet and exercise regime. But then we went, on a big study um, of a thousand people going to the gym. And there we saw everybody actually in increase their glycanage over a year. And these were 40s and 60s going to the gym for the very first time, trained by young PT. So we were very confused. Going to the gym is the healthiest thing you can do, or it, it was popular, uh, it still is. And what we then found looking at the smaller, uh, well, we did a big cohort on weight loss. So we looked at 2000 twins over 20 years, we looked at caloric restriction and bariatric surgery. And we know that you can reduce your glycemate with weight loss. And uh, this, if you're gaining weight, you age faster. If you're losing it, you age slower. Um, if you are combining, so if you do just exercise, so if you do think something like interval sprints, we saw a cohort of men get younger in, in three months time. So exercise is good. But if you combine caloric restriction and intense exercise, you see the reverse you accumulate chronic inflammation and your glycanage goes up, which was very, very interesting. Um, other than that, we, if you, and this is the data we have access to, but if you do a fecal microbiome transplant, if you improve the immune system in the, in the gut, you will improve the immune system in the blood and uh, your glycanage would go down. If you, uh, on diets are very complicated. So when we saw weight loss works, so we thought, okay, let's, um, uh, study all the different diets and find that the top diet that all of us should follow for longevity. And we, and this is actually just being drafted, but it was a European cohort of 600 people over a year. And we saw that on every of the diets, even on the high carb diet, half people uh, benefit or, or get younger, half people get older. So we're very individual in how we respond to foods. Uh, apart from that, we're looking at drugs now. So one uh, we know that um, post-menopause or in induced menopause, if you supplement with estrogen, you will prevent the increase. If you don't, you will see this uh, acceleration of, of your immune age or glycan age. Uh, and that's actually, I think that was some epigenetic clock also sees acceleration, I think about 6%. Well, we see that from uh, pre-menopause to menopause, the acceleration of your glycan age is 
more than double, which would go from, let's say, an average of nine years uh, to 30 years in, in, in some women. And then you can prevent that with um, uh, uh, intervention. And I can go on. So we have a few more, but I'll stop here. Uh, but you're also now looking at all the popular longevity drugs to see if that has an impact. Anybody wants to add something to those statements? I don't know if we're going to touch on interventions later, but I can also say, I think too, in talking about where the field is, um, what, what I haven't seen done in using any of the clocks um, is showing that certain types of changes in response to an intervention will then confer some benefit in health analyzation. We've linked, we've shown we can predict to some degree outcomes. We've shown that we can modulate the clocks, but we've never shown that change equals change. And I think that's where we're gonna need these intervention studies to actually understand long-term are the same people you see reductions in, the ones will then have reduced disease incidence or increased life expectancy. And, and of course, these are gonna be, unfortunately, very long trials to run, um, but some people are trying to recruit based on that idea of shortening that time frame. Yeah. And I think an important point that was already mentioned by Nicolina is actually the variability between individuals, because we also know that some interventions work very well in certain people, while other, in other people they don't work. It's really uh, yeah, personalized medicine in, 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 this, in this sense. And for example, we know if you have a high blood pressure and you do a specific kind of intervention, then the intervention would work. But if you have a normal blood pressure, the intervention doesn't do anything. That's, that's what we have shown previously for, for a lifestyle intervention. So this is also something that in these types of studies we need to take into account. That's why the bigger you go and the more stratified your population is, the better you can estimate. Because we don't expect that everybody will react in the same way to an intervention. And hopefully also the ideal biomarker will also show that, that, that maybe these people have already a biomarker profile where it's known that if you do a specific intervention, they will not profit. Or if they have another biomarker profile, we know that this specific intervention will actually help. So this is also something that we should always take into account, that there's this large variability in the population in how people will respond to interventions. With, with oh, sorry. Go ahead, Morgan. I would just say, yeah, just to echo that, I think biomark these biomarkers of aging can be used not just as outcomes, but inclusion criteria, which I think is, yeah, I mean, that's basically what George was saying. And I think we often don't think of them in that regard, but that might actually be where they're almost more suitable. There are like two things I want to follow up on. One is like, um, with regards to this variability that you just mentioned, uh, Joris, um, how much of biological age can actually be attributed like to stochasticity, like just like to random chance versus, um, well, you actually have like maybe some genetic component or like some other components that uh, we don't even know yet. Uh, what's like your, your, your gauge there? Well, this is very hard to estimate. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a geneticist as well. And if we look at, for example, lifespan, uh, we know that the genetic contribution is only 25%. When we look at longevity, which is kind of the extreme of the spectrum, it's, it's maybe a bit bigger, but also in that direction. So we know that on, if we look at lifespan, it's, the majority of it is, is environmentally determined. So probably 
um, that's also the component we need to focus on. Uh, there will be some genetic component, but I think also when we look at biomarkers, which ideally reflect how long you will live or how healthy, how long you live healthily, um, it will only be to a minor extent genetically determined. And we should focus way more on the environmental component here. I mean, environmental component, do you like directly mean by that like epigenetic components or no, like... No. Uh, Sorry, with that I mean, for example, um, uh, you're smoking, you're drinking, you're, um, how much you exercise, what kind of pollution you have in your environment. So this is really things that partly are in your control, but also partly are, are out of your control. And nutrition is part of it. This is what we mean with environmental factors. I'm not, I'm not talking about epigenetics. Of course, your environmental components are often reflected in your epigenetics, actually. Um, but I'm really talking about the components themselves, like uh, like drinking or smoking. So, so one thing to also explain, so glycans are the most complex form of post-translational modification proteins. So they change the proteins post-translation. We have about uh, 25,000 genes that code for proteins. And then past those influences, the glycans also change how they work. And we look at a very narrow space of glycans, but as a field, there's potentially millions, hundreds of millions of different glycans that have this influence. What we know on the IgG glycans, there is a network of 40 different genes which uh, define the structure. So it's inherited as a complex trait. Uh, the influence is from 30 to 50%, depending on the different structures. And they're influenced by epigenetics as well. And then also your behavior and environment. And they put all of those things together. Uh, because the aging mechanism under is understood, it's simply aging, we know that if you're reducing this, you are reducing your risk of disease. We also know that some of the glycans are causal in certain diseases and they are being re reduced with interventions. Of course, there'll be an ideal scenario where we follow uh, the cohort through time post-intervention and then see if that also matches the long-term outcomes. But for example, we know that uh, postmenopausal women who are um, on replacement, their risk of all-cause mortality can go down from 9 to 14%. So there's some correlation with the different interventions where we can say we know that this would, would have an impact. But of course, it then comes back to there will never be one drug, one diet, one intervention that will work for everybody. So there will never be one longevity drug. You'll have to find the one that will work for you and then and have a way to evaluate it. Otherwise, what we do now you get a drug and we hope you respond. And then if you didn't, tough luck. Maybe we have another one to give you, but yeah, so that's another thing. Maybe let's stay, stick a little bit with like this cause and effect. What we heard that currently we have like certain interventions like rapamycin that can like take clocks back. And I think Morgan was hinting a little bit earlier. Can we actually do like the reverse? Can we, for example, just change methylation patterns or like can we just enter certain metabolomics into the body or like certain glycanes and this also will reverse age is this like a possibility that we like just directly go actually to what we measure and use that as um as an intervention as well um so i guess i with the epigenetic clocks this is a topic people talk a lot about. Um, can we just go in and change the methylation patterns for the CPGs and the clocks? Um, I am much more pessimistic about this, not that 
we can't change them. So there are technologies called CRISPR off or CRISPR on that where you can actually alter methylation pattern at specific CPGs and it's very stable. Um, I'm not optimistic because it's so multifactorial. So even if you have a clock that has 353 CPGs in it, those are probably proxies for tens to hundreds of thousands of CPGs throughout your entire genome. And being able to understand which CPGs you would actually need to target to get this is, I think, a, a huge challenge that I don't know if we're going to overcome or even if we can target that many simultaneously. Um, I don't think targeting just the clock CPGs will be enough to change the phenotype of the cell. Um, so in terms of directly, I don't, I don't think that, I don't think it'll work for methylation. We think that things like epigenetic programming are, you know, the cell has a program, it knows which ones to reset in this, and we don't need to figure out that. So can we just kind of hijack this machinery to have it do it for us? I think that's probably going to be a better way to do it. So just enabling nature, doing what it already kind of knows what to do, and we don't have to figure all of it out. Hmm. Interesting. But I guess your argument would also almost hold for genetics in general, that like uh, just like switching one gene uh, is not going to be medicine. It, d it depends on whether you have a complex trait or a Mendelian trait problem. Yeah. True. I mean, with, with metabolomics, we know how to target some of the metabolites. I mean, we know how to, to lower your glucose, how, how to lower your cholesterol. So it's already done, but only, it gives only a, a limited uh, protection for these people. And for some, like I said before, for some people, it works if your cholesterol is lower. For other people, it's actually better when their cholesterol is a bit higher. Um, so it, it in, that, in that way, it's possible. That's maybe easier than with epigenetics, but still... We don't know which specific metabolites we need to target in which way, in which individual to, to get the best outcome. So um, it's also, I think, a lot of our field is, is focused now on repurposing of drugs that are already used for diseases to see, okay, can we use them for aging as well? Um, because they give protection against a broader range of diseases than just the disease they were uh, created for. So, but on the other hand, I think we can also solve a lot of things by getting people off drugs and letting them do um, more lifestyle interventions like nutritional or uh, exercise, which is one thing I'm always trying to promote is that people, we are, I'm, I'm not a fan of creating another drug that can do it for you. I think people need to be active in doing things themselves. They need to actively work on their health and not rely on, as a scientist, creating a drug for them that will do it. I think people need to be actively thinking about how they can improve their own health. I would say that's the start. You have a certain amount of healthy years left in your life, lifestyle. And if you fix it, you can get 10, 15, maybe more years of healthy life. But then you get to a point where the lifestyle intervention won't be enough or you, you're ready for a drug. So. I think, there, of course, ideal if we can reverse the whole process, but it's not so easy to do. And also, if you look at human behavior, it's really hard to change your behavior. You need to be very motivated. And I agree, if there was not a pill, if you just had to, if that was your only solution, maybe you'd be a bit more motivated. But in a way, we want to keep the people who have gone past that 
stage as well. Uh, and on the glycans, it's very complicated, this, this um, glycan interventions to stop it. Well, there has been a very old therapy that was used in former Yugoslavia, IVIGG. It does help with some uh, autoimmune condition and it does uh, prolong your life potentially for a few months, but it's very unsafe. It's like the blood transfusion, you know, you wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say this is a, a therapy to go forward with, but what we did in animal models, there was um, a mice study where the mice were fed a high fat diet uh, and they become obese and develop hypertension. But if you give them a certain glycan, uh, which is a pre, uh, so, a certain precursor to a certain glycan, the mice become obese, but don't develop hypertension. So you can prevent hypertension in mice. But then there's also the question, is this just if you're developing the disease or does this benefit help healthy people as well? So that, that's one we would uh, need to look at humans. Thank cool. Um... Maybe let's switch gears a little bit and go like from the biology a little bit, maybe more like toward the technical and business challenges of like uh, the field. And um, either of you, I mean, what kind of technical breakthroughs do you actually think would the field of quantifying biological age really benefit from? Do we need like better and cheaper machinery um, or where do you currently see there's like a lot of room in, for improvement? Um, I mean, for me, I think it's, it's kind of twofold. So on one hand, I think for the epigenetics and the methylation, we first need to just understand what we're actually measuring. So what is driving these changes and at all how, how these changes map to the outcomes that we usually associate them with. Um, so this is not necessarily on the technology development for for utilizing these in humans, but actually I think, you know, more being able to do this at the single cell and actually linking these to phenotypic changes in, in cells or other potential mechanisms of aging. Um, so that's kind of one hand we need to do that. This, on the other hand, I think we need to also develop cheaper methods for measuring this, but only once we understand what we, which parts we want to measure. Um, so there's the, I think it's just a preprint right now um, by Patrick Griffin from Davis Sinclair's lab developing this time seek method, which is a much, much cheaper way to do, to have to generate a methylation clock, um, which I think is fabulous. Um, I think the one thing we will need to do is first understand which features we want to capture with that method. So it's kind of twofold that we need to do for methylation at least. So what's currently missing? like to 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 analyze those features or, or like find finding that this is like what's the problem what's missing is there not enough data not enough people doing it not enough money why, why isn't it done yet uh so for the methylation i think the single cell single cell methylation is not good data it's very hard to measure methylation in single cell you have very sparse data so a lot of missing data um, but also i think we need to be able to do multi-omics in a single cell so because you're going to have to link the methylation to other features of cellular changes. Um, people are working on this. So Wolf Reich's lab has um, some kind of multimodal, but I think the technology for that needs to get better. Um, and I, at least that's how I kind of see the bottleneck. Once we can do that, we can start to understand what we're capturing a little bit better and then apply these other methods like the one that Patrick has developed to actually more cheaply quantify those changes.
And I want to add indeed that it's important that we combine the best of all the omics together in, in ideally one measurement. So if you really want to implement it easily, for example, in the clinic, it needs to be straightforward. So it needs to be something that where you can with one measurement, ideally, which you can get back fast because you go to the doctor, you get it the next day, measure all these different omics types of things or the best markers from all these omics at once so that you get the overall picture of an individual. I think this is something which will be a struggle for the field to get to that, that stage because a lot of people like we also see here are, are working on one specific aspect and the combination of all these things together is is not there's no real company focusing on that yet i think but that is for me the future where we have one measurement that gives an idea of your metabolome your proteome your epigenetics and your glycans and then you measure that in a person and get a, a general idea of their health that's for me the future So I can tell you from practice where we had challenges and, and what worked and the first awareness and then understanding that biological age is related to health because age is such a, we have so many predefined concepts about it that it doesn't automatically translate. You think about it as something superficial. You don't necessarily think about it as your future health. So I think that needs to be as a concept, something that's broadly accepted. Uh, other is cost. So initially, the way we analyzed the sample, because it was plasma, it was very expensive to do, logistically it was very challenging. The tests would have been 600 pounds for one, and this was about six years ago. And then we also couldn't tell you if you can change it. So another, another thing is, so getting the price down, uh, and there we did a lot of work, and we are much cheaper than it used to be, but we don't want to compromise in accuracy. So we're waiting until we can scale up with the same uh, accuracy and, and then because if you have a change in your glycan age it's a real biological change our air margin is, is less than a year so you really know that what you're doing means something for you it's not just a lot better um, on the other side is people need a solution so if you're just giving them a biological age and it's higher or you know they want to do something about it they're not really buying the biological age they're buying the slowing down my aging so you need to give them some options of what they can do to control this clock otherwise you will get some early enthusiasts and people will try it but it wouldn't be really what they're trying trying to do and they're trying to slow down their aging so it needs to you need to have some study interventions that you can suggest and you know they would impact the clock otherwise it, i don't think it's a complete product and it's never complete because there will be so many different interventions uh, that I think, yeah, it's, it's going to go on forever. But bringing down the pr price and also speed of results is important because we're all very impatient. So that, that's a big challenge for us. I, I, and I don't, not only about the impatience, I think also for the decision making, it's sometimes important to get the results fast. So. And I mean, like like Morgan already mentioned, for me, it's important that we can use these markers also to identify people already at the start. So they don't have to be a marker of how well the intervention is going. It's also kind of what is the state, which people are the vulnerable people that we need to target. And ideally with an easy measure that, um, that represents the whole profi profile of the person. So Joris, when do you see like um, clinical aging biomarkers or biomarkers for aging in general deployed um, at a large scale in hospitals? 
what's like your uh, time frame on that? Five years, ten years? It, I think actually it depends on, on, on the companies developing these markers. The faster they go, the faster it can go. I mean, the, the company I worked with um, for the metabolomics, they are going already in, in this direction. They, they made it in a way that when you send your samples, you, you have it back quickly. And um, I think it, the, the faster the companies are in creating markers that are easily measurable um, for a cheap price, the, the faster it will go. But on the other hand, it's re doctors are often very stubborn. I don't want to offend any doctors, but in the sense that they are used to, to measure your glucose and your triglycerides or something. So we, we also really need to educate them that they need to do this. This will also take time. So although the companies are getting there and, and we are getting closer, we now also need to start educating the doctors that when a person comes to them, that they can also measure these other types of markers that maybe give a much better view of a person and then the currently used things, because there's a reason people are still measuring glucose and triglycerides because they are so used to it and it gives some information. And we as scientists need to make clear to them, okay, these are good markers to begin with, but we feel now we are at the next phase where we have better markers that you now should implement. So, um, so getting it in the clinic from a company perspective, I would say take 10 years, maybe, hopefully. But then also to convincing the doctors to start using it will take some more time. So the sooner we start with that, the better. I will say that some of the clinical markers that you do get from your doctor's visit can be used in the context of biological age already. So I know a lot of people put up like free versions of a calculator I made a long time ago where you literally can take your lab results and put them and you do get back a measure and actually I mean, we've found that that measure is as predictive, if not more predictive than things like methylation clock. We haven't compared to all the biological age me measures. So, I mean, you can guess, I mean, your doctor is not going to put them together and interpret that for you, but people, if they want to do some of the legwork, not much is typing in nine numbers. Um, you can get something out of it from what we get right now. Yeah, and I think there are like also like more longevity clinics or like specialized clinics coming up where you actually can, for money, of course, get like a larger panel or like uh, uh, more tests. Uh, maybe one last question from my end before we head like to like the few questions that we have. How do you think about standardization in this field? Like, I mean, like you said, uh, glucose is like something, the measurement is probably fairly standardized. But now if we like talk for every new biomarker, you have like new companies bringing up some of them have like different chemical ways of analyzing them but then if you put algorithms in the mix the algorithms are also aligned or like in a way proper uh, proprietary um, um, knowledge right so how how can consumers or like even doctors like uh, rely on on what like a methylation clock is saying or like a, a, a glycan clock or uh, or whatever how, what's the what's the status of that in in the field Um, so I'll answer for the methylation clocks, I guess. Um, so I will say, actually, one thing I don't think I've mentioned is that traditional epigenetic clocks are extremely noisy. So I can take the same sample, same blood sample, split it twice and measure it. And you can get five, even nine years difference on a technical replicate, um, which, you know, is going to be amazing. And this is not even talking about batch effects. I'm not talking about measuring it a week later. It's the same sample. Um, 
we've we've done some kind of statistical methods to bring that down to less than one or two years. Um, but that doesn't overcome different labs applying different tests. And then, you know, you will still have these batch effects um, depending on which lab is doing it. So I do think this is something that needs to be dealt with. And yeah, we can learn from what was done for more of these traditional measures, although they are also noisy. So working on with some of these cohorts who try to harmonize this stuff as well. I mean, you get different labs will give you different cholesterol measures. So they're not, they're not perfect either, but we, we could probably still do better in terms of standardizing. And actually related to that, and something I think she was brought up earlier is understanding kind of circadian changes, whether you need to recommend people be fasted, whether they should not, you know, whether they should get their tests in the morning or in the evening or all these different parameters that might artificially change the values. I think we have for the most part, no idea, at least for methylation clocks, how those things factor in. No, you go. No, I want to add to the last point indeed. I mean, what we also see is actually an issue in the clinic is that a lot of things are measured in the fasted state because that's easy. You, you get people in, you measure their fasting glucose and that's then, you, you can say something about their health. But actually, we think that the fasting state is also not the ideal state to measure individuals in. So this is also something that we should actually try to work on to, to get to a state which is a standard state for people, which is not a fasted state, but actually says more about the system. For example, give them a standardized uh, meal or something and then measure their response. Because we also think that that is much more, saying much more about how they are doing than your fasted state. So... And yes, the measures in the clinic are more standardized. Um, and I think also with the metabolomics, this is also what the companies are really working on, getting it standardized, getting it recognized to be clinically um, reliable, but still there. We know how, how much it fluctuates between different states. So we can, we can work on that from the measurement level, but we also really need to work on that from when we measure people, which is very, very important. And it should also be standardized. Yeah, so I think this is more of a problem for the methylation field because you have so many different clocks, so many different algorithms, and not all of them are transparent about everything they're measuring. They're just a version of a certain clock. Um, for us, fasting, fasting state doesn't matter because the half-life is very long. Uh, and also, the uh, it's prognostic. So in some cases, you have years to respond, so you don't need to know your results the next day. Um, but it's more the, so everybody, in, in our case, we share all of the raw data, the user's own data. And if you're ever doing it with another lab, the raw measurement should be the same. So from, they should be achieving the same raw measurement. Uh, the algorithm is something that's modeled and we even approved it a couple of times as the data set, as the data sets grows. And for us, what's uniquely also, it's, it's our data set. So, so far it's 150,000 people and we're expanding it and including more cohorts. So as I, I think the most, the largest and the most interesting data sets will have the most interesting models for it as well. So I think it's important where the clocks come from, um, where we have a little bit of a unique position because we are a lab and then we're spin out of the lab. So we um, have a little bit more insight than if you're working from somebody else's work. And then, 
the difference between all of them would be interesting. So I think from there we need to, um, well, standardize, ag agree upon all the different hallmarks of, of aging. I think there's definitely more, like inflammation wasn't in the nine hallmarks of aging. So I think we definitely need a 10th one. Uh, and then all the best ways to measure these hallmarks of aging, and then putting that all together in, in one picture uh, and, and exploring different therapies in, in all of them. Well, it seems like there's like a lot of work to be done still to get that all under one uh, umbrella. Uh, I could ask more questions now, but I'm uh, gonna take some questions from the audience. And uh, the first question is, how important is measuring telomeres for, for determining biological age? So I worked on telomeres. I mean, in the beginning, those were seen as the mark of biological age before the other ones were there, but I think it's losing ground. So there are now multiple papers that actually show that uh, the epigenetic markers and other markers seem to be better markers of biological age than the telomeres. And the predictive ability of the telomeres is only limited. So yes, you can add it. If you want to add something on top, you can measure your telomeres, but it's not the, the, the gold standard anymore, I would say, as it was say 10 years ago. Yeah, I guess like telomeres, it's the same problem also. There's like not standardization and different labs measure it differently, which like also adds noise. Um, we've got like a question from uh, Lawrence and he asks um, if you had all the money you need, all the talent you need, awareness to recruit trial participants, what would the ideal study look like? Longitudinal study to predict morbidity or mortality? Uh, I mean, also, I guess what my, my dream study would be. Um, so I think it would be longitudinal and obviously to predict morbidity and mortality. And it, I, I mean, it would just probably follow the same answer, like measure literally everything you can multiple times and at baseline. And I think the way you need to design it is to see kind of whether change, you, you should probably have an intervention arm and see whether you can change any of these biological ages and whether that has bearing on changes in outcomes. Um, I mean, for me, I would add a single cell and like more kind of molecularly focused part of this too. So you're collecting primary samples, but I, I guess that would be my answer. But also actually related to what Nicolina said earlier, I think is, you know, being able to predict to what, so probably having multiple interventions, right? And using this data to predict what interventions will work for people of a given profile. Um, so, so I like to think of this the same way you would get music recommendations or Netflix recommendations of shows. Like it, the algorithms can learn your profile and say people with your profile will have this response to this type of intervention. And we can kind of predict where you go, obviously. So I would kind of develop some trap that could actually validate that kind of thing. Are you pushing for a study like that with Altos? Uh, I mean, I think I'm going to be more focused on mechanism, but I would be happy to participate. Although possibly, we'll see. I think it's going to be easier in animals uh, originally, initially. I agree. I mean, this would be the perfect design, but the problem there is we have to wait for another 20, 30 years before we know for a lot of these things, what people develop. So that is always the problem with studies in humans where the animals can come in. That uh, for me, it's also the, the way you described it is also the ideal study, but yeah, we have to wait 
we have to collect start collecting samples now wait for 30 years and then we know what would be the best marker but that's the that's the way it is at the moment we've got another question uh, from robert directed at morgan the 2013 hallmarks of aging paper has qualitative descriptions descriptions of age related changes in the hallmarks mentioned does Altos or any other group, to your knowledge, have plans to produce a similar overview of the hallmarks, but with quantitative data? Um, not that I know of, uh, at least for Altos. I will, again, I, just to restate this, um, Altos does not, is not technically an aging company or longevity company. Um, so I don't know how much specific focus will be on the, the exact hallmarks of aging all, you know, trying to map those entirely. Um, I, I think the issue is going to be some of these hallmarks are much easier to quantify than others, um, which is why I think epigenetics and methylation is so popular, not, not necessarily because it's the most important. It's just there's a lot of data available and it's easy to quantify. So I think there are definitely groups. I, I, what I think is you're going to need groups with expertise in the individual hallmarks, each working on developing methods to quantify them. And once you can do that, then you know, come together and, and understand how they are interacting. But I don't know if a single group is gonna have the bandwidth to do all of them, but who knows, I, I have no idea. Wondering if like, uh, should we actually rename like aging clocks, cellular health clocks now that uh, it's like another, not about aging anymore, but uh, that's not the question. <laughs> We've got a question of, uh, from Keith Comedo related to the current conversation on exercise. Are there any relative simple diet or lifestyle changes that can show a reliable change uh, in the clocks inside of a time frame of three months? Yeah, that's his question. I think for here we have glycogen data, but then it also comes to the fact that you are unique. So we can see a signal that the majority of the cohort benefits from caloric restriction or weight loss, or the majority of the cohort benefits from interval sprints. And we can see like the majority doesn't benefit if you combine caloric restriction and intense exercise, but then some do. So it really depends on, on you and you have to experiment. You can go with a general rule, but you may be out of the norm and then you need to adapt it to you. And what we definitely see with diets is that the only one that was overall positive was caloric restriction and any other nutrient proportion was 50-50 chance. So it will or it won't, you have to try. Uh, potentially improving your microbiome. So one consensus in that field is diversity of plants, like 30 different a week. And then you, and we didn't do this in a study, so we don't know. We, we just have clients who would run the experiment and then see a significant change. So potentially everything that improves your microbiome would have a a positive effect but it also doesn't mean you should be popping all the probiotics because the microbiome is so different person to person so just one pill won't, won't make any miracles across the board cool let's take two more questions uh one is dedicated to uh, yoris um and it's referring to the your statement earlier that you made about like the genetic component um of uh, longevity or aging does the genetics versus environment statistics you mentioned built in assumptions about relationship to normal lifespan as if you were to consider a time frame of 150 years for example the genetic contribution versus the environmental would become much more significant and determinative correct 
Well, what we do see is that when we you go to the extremes of the population, so say if you are above 110 or maybe even, even older, then we think that the genetic component is actually stronger. So if you take the 10% longest lived of a population um, and you take their children, and also take there the 10% longest lift, then you actually see that it's, it's inherited as, as, as a method, much stronger genetic component. If you look at overall lifespan, which is much easier to estimate and to do genetic studies on, then it's only 25%. But we actually believe that in the extremes, the genetic component is bigger, but we, we lack the studies to actually quantify this component accurately because you would need large, ideally twin studies or, or large family-based designs to be able to actually quantify how big the genetic component is. But we definitely believe that the older you get, the more important your genetics become. Related well, to that, I'll just say sex differences become bigger, which is technically genetic, but I mean, to some, some degree, I'm not gonna make grand claims about sex differences in genetics. Perfect. Um, well, let's see maybe in the future when we have like the first 140 year old person we, or like multiple of them, uh, we can uh, have like some measures on that. Uh, maybe the last question is like uh, dedicated to Morgan primarily and uh, how is Altos, or how will Altos differ from Calico? I guess it's like a, a big question. It's like a new company, so you might not know yet, but uh, what what's your answer to that? Um, so I don't, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Um... I will just, to play devil's advocate, say that Calico is probably different from most people's outward perception of it. So there's probably a lot going on that people don't know about internally. Um, and yeah, I, I can't say for sure how Altos will differ. I do think, again, not to, to reiterate too much, but Altos does frame their mission slightly differently. So again, more in terms of this cellular health than aging and longevity per se. Um, so that might be one way, but to be determined. Cool. So you guys, any of you has like any last words, anything that one you want to share? I think Morgan, you're bringing out the book or is it already out? Um, May 3rd. Okay. And it's actually on this side, it's on biological age. Nina, Joris, anything from your end? Yeah, I think just sharing this as a concept still needs to spread widely. So I, I love what David Sinclair is doing. We need a lot more people in the field who are turning this into more popular concepts and then people will sign up for it. Because whenever something's new, the first response is skepticism. So we have to go past this kind of curve of adaptation and, and that requires a mass and, and then you always have the segment of the people who will you know, just never go for this or do anything <laughs> so which are actually much larger than we think well yeah well i just want to say i hope we we educated the people a bit about uh, how we feel about biomarkers and they use it in, to their advantage and Hopefully, we will soon be able to, to capture people's biological age in a good way and, and people can benefit from it. This is the hope of the field. And uh, let's see where we are in 10 years. Great. Cool. I think that's it for today then. Then uh, thank you, Joris, Morgan, and Nicolina for your insights and your time. 
And uh, yeah, for the crowd, we will have like another panel in February and uh, yeah, follow the speakers on Twitter and other social media platforms. It's always informative uh, and uh, exciting uh, times that we live in, um, especially with the progress in the entire longevity space. So everybody have a good day. Bye-bye. Thank you.